0: Before diving into today's episode, did you know that this podcast has a supporters club? By becoming a member, you not only gain access to exclusive content, but also play a crucial role in supporting your favorite podcast. See the link in the episode description to find out more. Now, let's get back to the episode. Oh, man, what a top-heavy week this is. You know, the fifth week of MonsterFest, and it's also my birthday week. Isn't that fun? <laughs> okay so let's see where we're at on the map of this whole thing let's see it's mini bites, and it was yes 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 the power play already landed uh, oh okay yeah time to get busy because i got a whole hour special going on here and multiple stories because not only is it monster fest but welcome to the jayman show here on g360 radio, K-360 radio. monster fest. yes 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 it sure enough is the fifth week of monster fest and my birthday week of course i'm j-man as usual <laughs> and welcome to episode 277 of the j-man show we are really getting up there aren't we Yep, 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 and you know what, considering that this is a big deal and everything, this will be an hour-length show. We got quite a lot of lengthy stories on the docket, but don't you worry, each one is pretty interesting and frightful in its own right, so we're bringing kind of our A-game on this one. So, you know, just sit back, relax, take out some brews, beers, or whatever you do, and have a good time with J-Man. Hey, that doesn't sound like a bad idea, does it? Well then, let's go on ahead and get this show started. By the way, I'm not responsible for any aftershocks or whatever you go through when you hear these things. I'm just saying, it's the time of the season, so ride it out. Alright, our first story for the night is called The Last Case. I'm putting this up here because I want to keep it separate from my other case files. You'll see why. For now, just know it didn't feel appropriate to keep it with the endless logs on cheating spouses and track down runaway teens. I'll level, I almost didn't type up this file at all. I nearly burned it. I'd have been more than happy to pretend that the following never happened. I changed my mind because I figured if I stay silent, somebody else might accidentally go poking down the rabbit hole. So yeah, my story. What you're about to read took place in the early 2010s. I didn't know when I signed in with the initial contract when Hannah Box did, But it was the last case I ever took as a private investigator. Something about the whole gig didn't feel right. I don't think you'll blame me for moving on to my current career as a debt collector though. It started out as routine. I got the call on a Monday morning while I was groaning away a hangover in the steam from a piping hot cup of black mud. London is a big place, and I'm good at finding people in it. My caseload was never slim, let's just put it that way. The phone ringing first on a Monday was not unusual. The nature of the case is what excited me enough to put me through the top of my schedule. The caller was one Hannah Boxted, 56, from Hackney. The case, her son, Ian. Namely, what the London Metropolitan Police weren't telling her about how he died. Hannah did not agree with the MET's verdict that Ian died by his own hand. When she came to my office that afternoon, she brought screenshots of private conversations, screenshots containing her son's plans, dreams, and hopes for the future the most recent of which was around booking a holiday, written a few hours before his allegedly self-inflicted death. Alone, these would not have led me to suspect I was dealing with anything out of the ordinary than a grieving mother in denial, but then she showed me the photos she sneaked off of his body when she had gone to identify it. Sure, Ian was covered head to toe in deep cuts, his nose was broken and his naked body was covered in dirt like he'd been sleeping in a dumpster. It was the body of someone who went through a lot of emotions and hardships in their final moments. I agree with what Hannah Box did though. This wasn't the body of someone who showed themselves out of the land of the living. Folks who choose their own ending don't die with screams on their faces. Ian was found about three days after his death in a car parked behind a warehouse. There were drugs in his system but not at the levels that induced dangerous behavior or overdose. Hannah's research had been thorough. I did tail enough junkie kids to confirm the chart she showed me didn't show anything more than a 19-year-old putting a little extra kick in his weekend. The cuts and negligible levels of party favors in the system was what led to the Met to rule self-murder. To Hanna's delight, I agreed on both fronts. The cuts couldn't have been self-inflicted. There were too many inch-long cuts and hard-to-reach places for Ian to have made them himself. There were also hundreds of them. He'd passed out long before getting to the fatal two gashes on his wrist. They were far too straight, too precise to be self-inflicted. Ian hadn't been found with a blade, so the ruling he'd use broken glass. I've been in enough bar fights to know what shards of glass can do, and they can't make cuts that perfect. The big question was, was Ian Boxted's body filthy and covered in lacerations, but where was the blood? The MET weren't being honest with Hanna Boxted, and I promised her I would find out why. It's a shame, once I had, I'd started being dishonest with her, too. Not because I'm a liar, but because I couldn't risk her digging deeper. My first stop was the possible crime scene. Ian had been found by a homeless guy on an abandoned industrial estate in Bethnal Green. Turned out to be a waste of an oyster swipe, on that initial journey at least. The Met had already picked the place clean, and it was a week's worth of the city's background motion that had long since washed away any evidence that they may have missed. I figured that this would probably be the case before I got there, though. I needed somewhere to begin, and on my usual runaway brats hunt, I visit the last known location, which was a good way to find that trail. So yeah, I didn't waste too long in an empty car park. The first time I went, the second time I woke up there is a different story. We'll get to that, though. At the time, I had no reason to be suspicious. I did need to send some photos I had taken from my phone to Hannah Boxstead, though. More to show her, I was already on the case more than anything else. That's why I ducked into the shadowy internet cafe money transfer point across the road from the vacant lot of empty warehouses and abandoned cars. The cramped, poorly lit room was busy. Two beefy blokes behind the counter and a dozen or so scrawny guys hunched over keyboards crammed in a room built with no more than eight occupants in mind. They had a nervous look about them. None made eye contact, not only with me, but with each other. They were all working in silence. All I could hear was the whirling of towers, the tapping of keys, and a buzz of fat blue bottle making drunken loops around the ceiling fan. It wasn't until I sat down and booted up the aging Windows 98 that I noticed the lack of speakers. None of the 8-pound-an-hour PCs had them. They weren't even blaring any tinny bad tune local radio from behind the counter, either. A distinct oddity in London. The towers were also missing headphones or auxiliary jacks. The audio cable slots of both mine and my neighbor's computers had been crudely melted closed with a lighter or a small blowtorch. I wish I had been curious enough to invest this, investigate this further. I would have saved myself a lot of hassle later on. As it was, I just shrugged and emailed the new crime scene photos across to Hannah Boxstead, shrugging off the massive red flags as one of life's little weird moments. My second line of inquiry was the list of Ian's friends provided by Hannah Boxstead. One of them, a lad based in Elephant and Castle, agreed to meet me, an aspiring solicitor named Asim Anana, a now former classmate of the deceased. I was surprised to find Asim Anana was as eager to meet me as I was him. He had been with Ian on the night of the latter's suspicious passing. He had video evidence to prove it, too. And after some brief introductions at his E&C flat, Mind clip and impatient, his shaky and hush, he shown me a series of clip on his iPhone. I'll spare you the red herring, the illegal ray of Asim Ian and a handful of other future lawmakers had visit that night, wasn't in the warehouse that I would like to soon wake up outside. Covered in sweat gibbering like a madman. It was a similar disused unit about a mile away. One that was regularly used for such underground events, judging by the intricacy of the sound system and lighting rigs visible on the small screen. The first few videos were normal, Ian and his friends laughing, dancing, and smelling the white powder on somebody's coffee table. It was the fourth video that made the color drain from both mine and Assam's faces instead. It was about 30 seconds into this clip, almost out of shot by the speaker, a few feet behind the gurning of Sim and two girls that Ian changed. Not started changing, changed. It was instantaneous. One frame was Ian Boxted, and the next, he wasn't. In the space of a single strobe flash, Ian went from grinning and dancing to standing rock still. He was so tense and upright that you'd be forgiven for thinking some unseen spirit had ran an iron rod up and through his spine to the base of his skull. Plenty of the other revelers had twisted, contorted faces. Powders and pills have that effect. That's why I think none of them had reacted to Ian's new face with the same gulp and sharp intake of breath as I did. One moment, Ian's features had been locked in a happy, toothy grin, and then in the next frame, they were still in a toothy grin alright, but it was far from happy. It was far from anything. After the switch, the corners of Ian's mouth curled up so much, they almost spiraled in on themselves. The lips between them were stretched so tautly that splits and trickles of blood appeared within a few seconds. New eyes bulged further than any chemical could induce. Rings of purple flesh surrounded them as they twitched and heaved in the sockets, trying to free themselves from his face. His eyelids folded in and on themselves, exposing the pulsing veins and capillaries on their undersides. Over the next five or six videos, Asim showed me Ian standing in the same spot with that twisted grin from various angles. No matter what Asim had filmed from the bolt upright, Ian was visible in the background, unmoving for what had been a couple of hours. Asim had studied the footage well because it took him pointing out the strange way. Way Ian was breathing for me to notice. Impressive, considering I made a comfortable living out of noticing things. Ian Boxted was alternating which lung he had breathed out of. Left and right. Left and right. Nostrils flaring alternatively in short, ar- all the rhythmic bursts. He stood there leaning to and fro slightly as the opposite halves of his chest rose and fell like a seesaw right until the two final videos. I am a proud man, I value my stoicism, it brings me no joy at all to admit that I let out a high-pitched yelp when in the penumulative clip the grinning statue did the unthinkable. It moved. On a trigger known to whatever mind lay behind those bulging eyes, the Ian thing turned 180 on its left heel and marched through a crowd of gurning ravers, moving its head with stiff but fluid swings like a parading soldier. Or a 50s lead wind-up toy. Before the footage ended, it was standing in front of a man-sized speaker, face inches away from the vibrating surface. The last footage was a Sim vomiting purple liquid into a bend. Over his shoulder, Ian Boxted was clearly visible. He was pushing his head into the speaker with such a full force that his skull rattled violently. He held it there for a full five minutes until dark streaks started to pour from his ears and pull at his chin. Before the clip cut to black, I was given a glance of his mangled broken face. The curled grin was gone, the nose was broken, and the blood from the fresh wound was mixed with confused tears. Ian had vanished after that. Asim Anand agreed to send me the footage on the condition that I never contact him again. He was very clear that he only reached out to me to pass the torch, so to speak. He wanted out. I should have followed his example. Ain't hindsight a bitch. I uploaded the clips to YouTube when I got back to my office and took a nap. This is actually a pro-gamer move in the world of (laughs) private investigation. If someone is hiding, then they can't resist testing how findable they are. Besides, I had no idea what the hell I was looking at anyway. I was hoping just as much for an explanation of the kind of psychological break that caused Ian's behavior as I was for another lead. My theory was something neurological at that point, you'd understand, but something still grounded in the rational, the explainable. When I woke a few hours later, I still had no explanation, but I did have another lead. Among the hundreds of cries of fake which protected my montage video from a takedown. There was one that offered a glimmer of hope. Well, what I thought was at the time was hope. What was it that red squid guy said in Star Wars? It's a trap! (laughs) had to throw that in anyway back to the story anyway one commentator left a lengthy response urging me to reach out the poster claimed to have witnessed the same exact thing at another nightclub a few months prior and had a video to prove it my mind began racing with visions of me on the front page of the papers the hero that exposed the dangerous new high killing London's youth I couldn't reply to speaker writer 81 fast enough I fist pumped when he responded in five minutes to tell me he lived so close I could be on his doorstep in about 10 the journey was short but not simple. The BlackBerry route planner, <laughs> remember those, took me down alleys and side passages I hadn't known of before. Despite living in the area for over a decade, the ruckus of the main roads dimmed in the quietness with every turn. The amber haze of light pollution that I associate with civilization less and less visible on each new unfamiliar street. Silent Hill! My phone assured me that the journey had indeed only taken ten minutes by the time I had reached the right row of terrace houses and the maze of terrace houses. It felt a lot longer, though, and my legs ached to prove it. Other than a hallway light on the second floor of the first house I passed, a beraggled fox digging through a wheelie, bin was the only sign of life. I shivered despite the night air not being cold. Speaker Rider 81 lived at house number 12 on this suburban street. When I knocked on the red wooden door, despite no lights being on it in this house either, I found it unlocked and swinging open on a single tap from my knuckles. I walked in half expecting to find signs of a burglary or a struggle or maybe even a squat full of junkies and vagrants. What I didn't expect was to find the cleanest and emptiest house I'd ever come across. The house was uninhabited, not just by people, but by anything. I spent nearly two hours pulling up floorboards, scouring empty cupboards, determined not to have wasted time on what now felt like an obvious prank, or, well, what at first felt like an obvious prank. The more I spent pulling apart that house, though, the more my frantic searching regained solid purpose. Something was wrong with that house. And until I figured out what it was, I couldn't put my finger exactly what. My first guess was this is a show home but even their deck was some kind of furniture beyond built-in cupboards. The house's exterior had been filthy and dilapidated like the rest of the street, but the inside couldn't be more further from this. Except for the exposed concrete or floorboards, even the kitchen and bathrooms had no tiles or linoleum. Every surface had been cleaned to sterility. Recently, too, some of the walls were still damped, and the faint, acidy tang of bleach was still in the air. What furniture did remain? The aforementioned cupboards and walled-in sinks and bathroom facilities had received the same treatment. They had been scrubbed to immaculacy. I doubt I could have even found a flick of dead skin. Never mind speaker Rider 81 or his case-cracking footage. In the end, I gave up and pulled out my phone to call a taxi. The poor woman on the other end of the line had never heard of the address and neither had her computer system. This was one normality ignoring lump of weirdness too many for me. I did what I always had to do when I felt out of my debt. I saw red. My profanity-laden attempts to explain my location were loud. That's why I didn't hear the guy with the cricket bat unlock the front door. When I came to, I was strapped to a chair. The top of my skull ached and when I moved, I could feel the peeling of dry blood on the back of my neck. I wasn't alone. Three of the men from the currency exchange slash internet cafe were standing over me. They weren't around for long, though. I had just enough time to start yelling at them, reminding them that I recognized them and knew who the hell they were. And then they wordlessly turned and left single file through a heavy metal door. The room it clanged shut behind was as unsettlingly clean as Speaker 80 81's house. I knew I must have moved at least a few miles because the vents and pipes on the whitewashed brick walls screamed industrial warehouse. The smell of breach was stronger here. Strong enough to cough and gag as I struggled against the thick belts holding me in. There were other smells too. Disinfect chlorine and other detergent vapors that sting the nostrils and burn the lungs. For a moment I was worried that they were gassing me. But when the actual reason for their bringing me here revealed itself, I realized I wasn't so lucky. The other object in the room aside from myself and the chair was a small Bluetooth speaker. Standing alone on the polished concrete a few feet in front of me, it was one of those portable jobs that couldn't have been larger than my fist. Only a few seconds after I paid attention, the green LED indicated a paired connection simmered into life. The music it played to the echoey room was tinny, a warbling mix that was all treble and no bass. The tune itself wasn't remarkable. It was some pop hit that may have been popular that summer. Katy Perry or Taylor Swift, I think. How much the screeching tones made my face ache immediately. and itch caused my attention, though. I began yanking and pulling against the thick belts, no longer trying to free myself, but just a hand to scratch my face. Within a few seconds, the unpleasant scritch scratch across my every facial feature had me twisting them in agony. It was at this point that I stopped seeing red and started seeing yellow. Before I could scream, there was a click. The glare of the strip bulb cutting in and out thrown the bleach-coated room in the darkness took me completely by surprise. Surprised that I didn't have long to wallow in. The muscles in my back tensed. The moment the light left, I felt something other than shadow step in to take its place. Something behind me. Some presence I was aware of as the leather belt stopped me from running for the door. I couldn't hear it, but I knew from the growing prickling replacing the sensation of dry blood on my neck that it was taking a slow, deliberate step towards me. I did scream now. A loud scream. A scream that even the more hyper-vigilant machismo I inherited from my father isn't ashamed of. It was when those screams bounce and echo off the hidden walls that I noticed that they... The waves of tinny noise from the speaker weren't behaving right. They weren't reverberating evenly around the room as they should have been. They were being directed. Every yell, every bar of tinny pop music rushing past my ears, much louder on the return journey. Each sound zipped and whirled like a passing freight train. Pulled behind me either by or into whatever was now gut-churningly close to the back of my neck. The itching on my face progressed to burning at this point. It also had the hot breath at the base of my skull. I wrenched against the belt so hard that the rivers of warm redness descended from the new flashes of pain at my wrists and ankles. My yells, pleas, and screams were all sucked beneath me, whooshing past my ears and vanishing without echo or reverb. The scalding breath moved up behind my left ear. The corners of my mouth felt more and more like they were soaked in acid. With every inch it moved. I must have been screaming, but I could no longer hear it. The barrage of sound ripped through every bone and ligament of my body, crushing and squeezing them with an intense pressure. I cannot explain, nor do I ever even be able to want to. The excruciating vibrations reached a final crescendo when the thing they gave formed a claw bleach smelling hand on my shoulder everything stopped in the instant the burning the crushing pressure on my insides and the boiling grip of that gnarling translate hand were gone that would have relieved me were it not for everything else going on with them my limbs a moment ago screaming in agony as they fought a losing battle against leather bindings had gone my throbbing eyes no longer throb because they no longer felt anything My screaming had ceased because I had no mouth to scream with. I was nothing beyond disembodied awareness. A bodiless sense of dread and wilting sanity. Drifting alone in a void. At least, I was alone at first. And once I noticed and I was aware of my lack of surroundings, things started to notice me. Things that moved and shifted in the dark. Curious things intrigued by movement in this place where it all had been still since before there was a universe for our star to be birthed in. I could feel or sense or know them circling me. Their hunger was palpable. It filled the empty space. If I had lungs, the fear that I had became would have burst them. I felt the first of these unspeakable presences crash upon me for the second time. Everything stopped. I could feel tarmac against my cheek. That didn't amaze me as much as uh, the fact I could feel my cheek, my face, and my arms, and my legs, and all the parts I was supposed to have. They hurt, but they weren't burning, and two good reasons to open my eyes. I was in a car park by the warehouse, the same car park the unfortunate homeless man had found the even more unfortunate E.M. Boxstead's body in. I was naked, bruised, and covered in a few cuts, but alive. As my memories of how I found myself naked, hurt, and on concrete started to return, so too did a panic rise in my gut. I ran screaming for the car park in the inn, looking up to see the three men from the sterilized room. One of them menacingly holding a cricket bat, looking down from a window on the top floor was enough. The message in their hate-filled expressions was clear. That was a warning. Don't go poking around where you're not wanted. At first I thought they were worried I would expose them, but now I know better. I never accepted another case. I shut down my LTD company and all websites and social accounts, and but not before crying under a cold shower for eight hours straight. I'd never gone back to Bethnal Green. I don't know if that those whatever happened is limited to there. I avoided spending too long around speakers in the years that followed, just in case. I told Hannah Box that the trail had run cold. What else could I do? She broke down in uncontrollable sobs, but this was all I first noticed. "'When something changed in me, her tears meant nothing to me. "'They prompted no pity, yet at the same time no annoyance. "'Emotionally, I was completely blank. "'It had been the first time since my psychiatrist used words like "'sociopath or personality disorder, but I know better, though. "'When that thing touched my core in the void, it took something with it. "'It left me half-full.' Partially empty, missing whatever part of the spirit or soul that allows you to connect with others. It's probably why I do so well as a debt collector. The sight of crying mothers and sobbing children does nothing to me as I break a father's arms over insignificantly small missed gambling payments. That's why I don't want you to go digging. I don't want anyone to risk following me down a rabbit hole. As scared of it as I was, the thing of Bethnal Green has blessed me. It chose me. I was worthy where Ian and the men from the Internet Cafe were not. It's a burden being their chosen, and it's one I wish I never had taken, but it's now mine, and I will never release it. Those things in the dark are mine. Their blessing is mine. When I'm ready to go back to Bethnal Green, I will turn on my speakers and meet them again. Once more, I will bask in their liberating touch, and I refuse to share it with anyone. Say, hey, that's not too bad <laughs> very interesting take on things so you know if anything else he must have really been up in a drug-fueled cult and if anything became a more of a monster than need be you know had he stayed in there long he probably would have been a lawyer just saying gee i don't know i think that story kind of ate half the show didn't it Eh, no worries, but if you guys ever want to hear any more of them, you can read about them on Kindle. It's called 100% Unfiltered Nightmare Fuel. <laughs> I just love the name of these books, you know? But yeah, I highly suggest you check this out sometime, and of course, you can look for the link of it right down in the description box below, okay? Now speaking of which, let's go ahead and get your another story ready for you. Mm-hmm. Let's see what's on the docket. Oh, this sounds like a good one. Alright, now this story is called Come Get Me, and this is from the collection called Coming Up Short. And once again, I'll have the link for all these books down at the bottom. Now, let's go ahead into it. The closet door was slightly open upon his waking. He closed it every night before lights out, so he knew that something had happened while he slept. It was unlikely that one of the guards had entered his room. The guards patrolled the hallways, shining their lights through the small windows at the top of the room doors. They only looked to make sure each inmate was in his or her bed. And then they moved on to the next door and the next. That was a routine, night after night, beyond 10 o'clock, all night. The routine had made it nearly impossible that one of the guards had entered his small prison. And even if one of them had caused to enter, they would have not messed with his closet door. Anyway, the door made a lot of noise when open, which would have woken him. He sat up on the edge of his bed and stared at the open crack, gaining a glimpse into the black depths of the closet. So afraid of the closet was he that he refused to put anything in it. His clothes were crammed in a small dresser. Dr. Nealon said that his belief about what had hidden in the closet was a symptom of his paranoia and a large part of the reason why he found himself in prison at the Mason Hospital of Psychiatry. The other reason was the murder of his younger sister, for which a jury had found him guilty, by reason of insanity, of course. He knew the bunch of sniveling, judgmental jury members would find him guilty before the trial had even begun. It had all been set up to make him look guilty of killing Brienne from the beginning. The little devils were nothing if not creative. He stared into the closet, wondering if they were staring back, out of eyesight, It was only a matter of time before they would strike against him and attempt to end his life, like Brienne's death. It would be made to look like anything but what really happened. He and Brienne had seen them, because he and his sister knew of their existence. They had both been marked for death. It was only a matter of time, which was why he didn't mind sharing details of them with the doctor and nurses. The more people who knew of them, the better off he would be in the long run. The problem was getting people to believe him about their existence proof was difficult to come by, and the one photo of them Brianna had taken had came up missing when she met her untimely end. He placed his feet on the cold floor, half expecting to feel the jagged slash of a claw across the back of his leg. When no such attack came, he leaned forward on his elbows and stared further into the depths of the closet. If he was going to die in the miserable, sterile environment of the mentally incompetent, he would do so by facing the little monsters, searching for the yellow eyes. At first, the closet remained only an empty dark space behind a partially closed door. He waited and watched the opening, knowing that soon, Rolf, the giant muscled guard, would be on his ass about getting dressed for breakfast. He stood and began to turn from the closet when he caught the slightest bit of movement out of the corner of his eye. He watched peripherally as he crossed the room, pretending to check the hallway through the viewing glass. A small talon hooked around the edge of the door yes he thought let it be today that this ended one way or another he would catch one of them for only a few moments he might convince dr nayland that he wasn't crazy like everyone else inside of the hospital walls he simply needed to wrap his arm around one of them scream at the top of his lungs one of the guards or nurses would arrive fast enough that they would see the monster before it would gouge out his eyes or impale him to death the claw on the edge of the door scraped down the edge The exposed Talon combined with the grating noise was intended to place fear in him. They liked to play games for weeks, sometimes months before killing. He thought that they somehow got off on instilling terror in their victims. He had lived that life for three weeks with Brienne, unable to convince their parents of the monster's reality. He ignored the sounds of the jagged Talon on the door and began removing clues from his dresser. They didn't like to be ignored. He returned to his unmade bed, placing his clothes on it while keeping his focus on the closet door. The long nail of a scaly claw raked up the door, faster this time. The sound was unavoidable in the small room, and yet he offered no reaction or awareness of his presence. He slipped out of his pajamas and underwear, standing nude on the opposite side of the bed from the closet. The door pushed open another inch. A yellow-tinged eye peered at him from the crack. He grabbed his fresh clothes and put his legs through them as as a hissing was heard from the closet. It was losing its patience with him. A quick glance at the closet, he pulled his shirt over his head and saw an exposed fang beneath the glowing eyeball. He ignored it and pulled a loose pair of sweatpants up to his legs and then turned his back to the door as he sat to slide his feet into his slippers. Clicks on the floor beneath him resonated throughout the room. It had come forth from its cave. Perhaps the day would be the day after all. A mealing sound came from behind him, and he prepared to spring at it. But if he could get a hold of any part of it and hang on while yelling for help, regardless of how much pain it inflicted, he would be able to get someone, anyone, to come running. The sound grew until he heard his name spoken. Brian. This was not the first time they had spoken. The trick was to keep them speaking and out in the open before they could work their magic. Yes? The edges of the door rippled. Then the whole room rippled. He pushed back against it. He needed to keep the thing moving closer to him. Do you know why you're here? That's right, keep talking. The fraying of the room stopped and popped back into place. Yes, because you murdered my sister and you want to kill me too. They couldn't manipulate reality. And once they did that, he'd end up seeing anything. None of their creative images were real... But it seemed like it. No, that was you. Have you not accepted responsibility yet? Mental manipulation. He crossed one leg over the other to keep his unconcerned appearance. You say that, but you forget. I was there and saw what you did. More clicking sounds on the floor. It was scuttling closer to him. It spoke again, but its sounds were distorted. The room buckled in on itself. He pinched his eyes closed and pushed inside of his head. And it was the only way to buy time but he could only keep them at bay for so long he needed it to come closer you saw yourself that day he could hear the echoes of his sister's giggles in his mind her laughter at his jokes no, it was you a little snicker came to his ears in his sister's voice he opened his eyes at the white wall of his prison cell twisting into the yellow color of Brianne's room and she sat next to him on the bed no, yes, you see her do you see her? It was crawling across our bed. It had come to them. Brianne, look out!' He swung at it, and he felt the dull thunk of his fist connecting. A crying voice, Brianne's voice asking, pleading, "'Why are you doing this?' The thing twisted the images in his mind. It created visions of his fist connecting with Brianne's blonde little head. "'Stop it!' On Brianne's bed, the green little devil with yellow eyes and protruding fangs slashed her neck. She gagged while it scuttled backwards across the bed, away from his swinging fists. Blood flew in the air. The monster slowed time so that he could see each drop wobbling in the air before him. The demon exclaimed, See, it was you. You're the monster. The images melted. Brienne was crawling away from him, screaming for their mother. His fist connected once again with her head. He shook the, his head from side to side. No, Stop try, stop trying to make me see these things. It was you. The thing behind him ticked across the floor. It was almost at the edge of the bed. In his mind, it flew from Brianne's bed and hurled itself towards her open closet door. Brian called out, I know the truth, despite what you show me. You killed her. You have powers to make me see things, but I know the truth. It came closer. No, you killed her, Brian. He stared into Brienne's room, watching himself stand up from her bed, pull her body by the arms. He- he pulled her into her open closet and shut the door. Brian clamped his eyes shut and then opened them. His hospital room was around him for a moment and then Brianne's room reemerged. He gazed into her mirror. His face splattered with blood. The image pulsed. His features enlarging and shrinking before him. And in the background of the mirror he saw the creature standing over Brianne's dead body. It lay twisted on her closet floor. They all knew you weren't well. Its voice was slick, like the scales on its hide. He tensed his muscles. The moment was drawing near. He would grasp the monster and cling to it before it could kill him or, or scurry back into the closet. No more hiding. Brian raised his voice. I'll make sure they all see you for who you are, devil. Lower your voice. Brian coiled his body until it quivered and asked, So you can keep your identity hidden from everyone? The tap-tap-tap sound of its talons on the tiled floor stopped. No. So you can get better, Brian. He leaned forward on the edge of the bed, tightening the core of his body, bracing for the battle ahead. He would only need one good shot, one good grasp on it, and he would scream loud enough to wake the dead. Brian opened his eyes. He was in his hospital room. He could feel it crawling its way up to his mattress. His bed covers pulled at his rear as the monster clutched its way to his back. This all ends tonight, Brian twisted, launching himself at the green monster behind him. Its yellow eyes widened in surprise. One of its claws rose to defend itself before it was too late. He wrapped both of his hands around its neck. It screamed and made a gargling sound as it were rinsing its mouth. Help. There was movement behind him. There were more of them, always more. He increased the strength of his hold and began screaming, Dr. Nayland, come! I have him! Please get here now! More gurgling, and then it screamed at him, Get off of me! Rolf, grab him! Pain shot up his side as the second one attacked. He yelled to the room, No more manipulation! Now everyone, you will see what happened to Brienne! It twisted in his grasp as the second one clutched him. You happened to Brienne! Dr. Nalen's face replaced the scaly monster's head. He was lying under Brian, staring into his eyes, gasping. Next to his head on the floor was the keyboard to his computer. The vision distorted it again, popping away, and the monster was back, screeching into his mind. The pain at his side grew until his vision began to fade. He clung to consciousness while he screamed for the doctor. He screamed for the nurses, and then he screamed for Rolf. He screamed for them all, and they all needed to see the truth. His voice faded with the images of the twisting and the lurching monster in his grasp, and then all was black. Dr. Nayland stared through the glass into Brian's room while rubbing at the bruises across his neck as Rolf stood next to him. D- do you want to keep him sedated for a couple of days? Dr. Nayland looked away from Brian's dozing body. Yes, and thank you, Rolf. You saved me back there. I underestimated the depth of his delusional state. He almost killed me. I will not make that mistake again. Rolf nodded and clapped the doctor on the back. Hey, it's why I'm here. You'll get him figured out. Rolf walked away, and Dr. Nayland checked the room. Brian had rolled over in his sleep, and he began to move away from the view portal when he noticed the closet door. It had sprang open once again. No wonder Brian was so terrified of the small closet. They closed the door repeatedly, only to find it hanging open. He would need to get maintenance to fix the door so it would stay closed. They would also need to touch up on the paint. There's scratches all over it. He leaned closer to the glass, focusing on the bottom portion of the door near the floor. As fearful as Brian was of the closet, it appeared that he had done some extensive damage. No wonder he had been so wound up. Damn! (laughs) Hey, this is why, like, mental health is really important. Because you never know what sort of monsters that people are fighting on the inside. And poor Brian here, apparently, he had so many breaks to a point, he ended up killing one of his own. You know, that's a shame, too. And almost like the doctor with him. It, you never know what somebody's suffering from, folks. And right then and there, that's just a sign of... Damn! You know what I mean? And then, you know, you kind of get the point because you never know what that monster looked like. And in his mind, he thought he was the hero of the story. Whew, surprises. Okay, this next one is going to be a pretty interesting story. This one is called Precious Moments. And this is out of that storybook called A Trick of the Light Short Horror Stories. Alright. Now note, I didn't say this was the last one, so take a listen, okay? I don't even know if I should read this or not. Actually, let's just do the thing. It's called Precious Moments. The door opened. He had his helmet on the dryer. Daddy, daddy, the chorus rang. His two girls ran at him, each holding a leg and tried to hug him as hard as they could. Do you know what we did in school today? Asked five-year-old Sarah. What? He asked, generally interested. We we made dinosaurs, she exclaimed, holding up her pictures. That's great, honey. Da da! his youngest daughter said with just as much excitement. Well, hello, baby, he said, picking her up in his arms and hugging her to his chest. Nothing's thawed, so it's just leftover and macaroni for the kids, said his wife. ''I don't want macaroni,'' said Sarah. ''Well, that's what we have, so that's what it is.'' Yeah, ''I don't want that either,'' he said. ''We can't afford to eat out again, and that's what it is.'' ''I think we can afford a hamburger, honey,'' he countered. ''Yay,'' said Sarah as her mother raised an eyebrow. Whey, said the baby, and his heart broke in two. The government man had been snooping around the last few days. He carried a leather binder and smelled of office coffee and bullshit. He came to assess operations after a containment breach in Sector 4. Only he had arrived two days too late. The breach had been contained and everything had been sealed up and back to normal. Then this guy. Mama please. Mama please," echoed the baby. He looked at his wife and shrugged, tears fighting to be released and now bacon, cheese, and curly fries. In another round, he said. Hitting it a little hard, she asked. He shrugged and downed the bottle. All he had to offer was a smile. So that's it? That's it, said the government man. Go home, hug your kids, make love to your wife. We're done here. But you have about seven hours until the end of the world. Do you want to spend it arguing with me? I guess, look, we are trying to contain this. You, me, the rest of the world. We're done for. But maybe, he shrugged. Daddy? Yes, honey. Avery says I'm not pretty. You know what? Fuck Avery, honey. Just go home. There's nothing more, any more you can do, or anyone can do. But I. Good night, Mr. Thompson. G- good night. And then everything and everything said roar, and that's how the movie ended. Said one child. Daddy, Mama said the other. He kept them up for as long as he could. His wife was angry at first. "'But they knew each other well enough. "'She could tell something was dreadfully wrong. "'She sat quietly and sipped her wine "'while he played with the kids. "'Come on, Mama,' they called. "'It was nearing 11 o'clock at night. "'She set down her glass and piled on. "'The baby was dozing on the floor, "'still giggling occasionally in her sleep. "'They put Sarah to bed and made love on the sofa. "'He tried to remember a time "'when his wife looked more beautiful "'than she did at this very moment. "'He knew the jets were already flying.' He held her close and allowed himself to cry as she snored softly. Dang. That's heavy. True to form, but very heavy. And you never know how it goes. But, you know, there was this one time I had a dream of a last day, right? Okay, and I did... Well... I did one last showcase. I told my parents it was a good ride. And then... Spend the rest of the time with uh, the woman I love. So, yeah. It's kind of unreal. And this is my birthday week, too, and I'm talking about the last day on Earth. i was like, what the hell is going on? But, you know, the thing about it is, little things like that, like, there was a Twilight Zone episode that was like that, where the end of the world was going to happen, and then, like, one man took his family, and they had their mutual friends, and they got into the spaceship, experimental spaceship, mind you, which could have fell apart at any time to get away, but they were cornered by his boss that actually wanted the war to go on, and it it was a fight to see if they would make it or not, but I think it was called Third Planet from the Sun, so... Yeah, if you ever want to deal with a scenario like this, you know, anyway, if you take precious moments into consideration or you make the attempt to make new memories and you go about things, you start going for those jobs that they say you're not qualified for, or you start like going ahead and just competing like yours truly does, <laughs> things start to actually come full circle. And you never know. You, you go after somebody you care about and they like you back. That's something wonderful, too. That's why you should always go for things and never wait for, like, this prime great moment. You know what I mean? You don't have to worry about waiting for the moment when you're busy building the moment. See what I'm saying? It's little things like that. And then, you know, you realize what you have because, like, once everything goes away and a fatal snap like that, it's kind of weird. You no? Know? All in all, though, let's go ahead and move to another story here. Okay, our last story for tonight is called Ruckus. And no, not Uncle Ruckus from the boondocks. <laughs> that wouldn't be, uh, well, no, no, that wouldn't be a light story at all. That may have problems. Okay, but anyway, here we go. Let's jump in, shall we? And this is also from A Trick of the Light, short stories, you know, nightmare fuel. So let's go on ahead with this. I had just gotten home from work and was digging in the pantry for a snack when my wife Julie came in and handed me a pink backpack. You should see what your daughter did to her math test, she said, half laughing. I sat down and emptied the pack on the table. An uneathing half of a sandwich fell out among various folders. I found the one-mark homework and opened it and had to suppress a giggle. The folder and everything in it had been completely covered in doodles. Mermaids of all colors swam in the margins. Elves with pointed ears stood with short swords and bows at the ready. Allie's imagination knew no bounds, and I flipped to the graded page with teacher feedback, scribbling red ink at the top. 87% good job. I scanned the paper looking for what she had gotten wrong among the doodles. Then the entire sheet came into focus and I sat in a quiet awe of my ten-year-old's artistic talents. She had drawn a dragon around the missed questions. The creature's body snaked about the other problems, each of which had been decorated to look like parts of a castle. Knights, elves, and fairies fought the dragon between the lines. The dragon itself was so finely detailed in some spots, it actually seemed to glisten. She drawn and shaded every scale. The beast was wounded, and blood trickled down from the injuries along its neck and torso. Dead warriors were scattered across the page, little figures lying in pools of blood, lost or discarded weapons covering every square millimeter of available space. It was, in short, a masterpiece an epic battle between man and monster. The faces on the little warriors showed grim determination that seemed to mask fear? Was that right? Was she really that detailed or am I just reading too much into this? I mean, her art was amazing. It had been since she was old enough to hold a crown, but did a bunch of doodles on leftover homework sheets really command such reverence? I didn't want to think so. Still, I couldn't look away. It was magnificent. I regretted that the canvas was covered in math problems. This was one I'd be happy to keep were it not for the fact that every square inch of available space in my office was already dedicated to my daughter's drawings. Still, this dragon was unreal." Since she had been a toddler, Allie loved fantastic beasts and far off worlds of adventures and romance. It wasn't surprising that she loved unicorns, Disney princesses, and the like. Most girls her age enjoyed those things. What was a bit unusual is that she also enjoyed the darker stuff. Dragons and trolls were some of her favorite things to draw, and when her elementary school classes lost her attention, she dutifully sketched row after row of soldiers, each one complete with armor and weapons. Elvish armies seemed to be her favorite and she had dozens of pages of little elves squinting under helmets while their long ears poked out in different directions, often with comical effect. Allie came in a few minutes later, and I handed her the paper. B plus, eh? Not bad. She looked at it and then said it on the table. Would have been an A, but you needed the answer to question 12 to solve question 13, and I got 12 wrong, so she rolled her eyes. So you set a dragon on them? Dragons are good for solving problems, Dad. Ask any dragon. What's the reciprocal? And he won't even think about it. He'll just bury you to ash. Reciprocals are stupid. Dragons know this. I couldn't help but laugh as Allie shook her head in mock frustration before asking, Did we get any mail? I don't know, but I know you how you could find out, Julie said. Allie got the hint and hit towards the front door. That's another thing dragons have no patience for. Late mail. Be late once, maybe get an arm or a leg bitten off as a warning. Do it again? Allie made a sound in her throat and waved her arm to indicate that she was burning everything around her. And as funny as it was, I glanced over at the little elvish army men on her math test. Those four fellows! I secretly hope they never did anything to incur the wrath of Allie or her dragons. One soldier in particular had a grim look on his face, and I picked up the paper a look closer. Don't worry, man. Just don't talk about reciprocals and you should be just fine. Are you seriously talking the homework? Julie asked. I held the page and looked at it from looked from it to her before saying, Well, you heard her, didn't you? These guys are cute. You don't want her sicking her dragons on them or anything. Julie laughed. You're just as bad as she is. So how's the contest entries going? I asked after Allie had came back in and the three of us sat down for dinner. Last year when Allie was nine, Julie had entered two of her drawings into a local contest and she'd won first prize. And if that weren't enough, the Children's Hospital bought both pictures at auction for $100 apiece. The look on her face when she had held that blue ribbon and that check was priceless. After that, she was hooked. If there was an art contest of any kind, Allie would enter it. Sometimes she would enter several drawings per contest just to increase her odds. And because she was really good, and this isn't just proud dad talk, she won quite a few. Most often, the prize was a gift card to an art store or hobby store. Allie's dresser drawers were packed with sketchbooks, pencils, markers, and other art supplies that she either won or brought with prize money. And at least a couple of times a week, she either sent out an envelope of new submissions or one would arrive announcing whether she had won something. It was not uncommon for nearly all the mail to be for her. That day was no different, and as we sat around the table to eat, the doorbell rang. Allie hopped up and ran to the door, returning a moment later with a package. She tore it open and dumped the contents next to her plate. One of the bubble wrap came, a hardback book, and a book of, box of pencils. And I could tell at first glance that this was some high-quality stuff. The pencil box was made of wood and had a little silver clasp holding it closed. The book was leather-bound and gilded in silver. It was beautiful. She searched the envelope for a letter to tell her which contest she had won or where it had come from. But other than the box and the book, the package was empty. The only communication was a note on the first page of the book, Written in exquisite calligraphy, it said, For Allison Denning, if all your heart and the soul you do give, more than mere drawings, the things you dream live. Cool, said Allie. She set the book aside and opened the pencil box. These seemed to be almost handcrafted. They were not perfectly straight, and the lead points differed in length and thickness. Allie took one and grabbed a piece of notebook paper from her backpack. She made lines of with each of the pencils before examining They all got different hardness for shading and fine lines and everything. It's a master's kit. She gulped down her dinner and then ran to her room to try out her new stuff. I leaned back in my chair and smiled at my wife. She really is amazing, isn't she? It was the last time any of us would smile. That night was my turn to tuck Allie in at bedtime. After baths and brushed teeth and a round of hugs and kisses, I followed her into her room and sat on the edge of her bed. So how do you like the new pencils? They're awesome, she yawned. Really easy. Can I take a look? Sure. I picked up the book from her nightstand and I opened it and nearly jumped out of my skin. On the page was the nastiest creature I've ever seen. A squat, muscular body sat on short, powerful legs. Its arms were thick with huge hands that terminated when curved. Cruel-looking claws... And its face was even worse. Small, beady eyes were shadowed by an exaggerated brow, while tiny, pointed ears stuck out from the sides of its misshapen head. A short snout snarled around long rows of pointed teeth. Saliva hanged in thick ropes from its bottom jaw. And But despite being disgusting, the figure was rendered with a master's skill and talent. The shading on the eyes and the skin gave it a three-dimensional effect that made it practically jump off the page. Allie, I said. She leaned in to have a look. Oh, that's just ruckus, she said. He lives in the woods and eats the children that get lost in there. She stretched and yawned again. Good night, Daddy. I closed the book and hugged and kissed her again. Turning the light out as I left the room, I looked back over my shoulder, disturbed by the way her nightlight cast shadows on the wall. G- Good night, my love. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams. Hours later, we were awakened by a scream. I threw on my shorts and ran down the hall to Allie's room. Her lamp was on and she sat up in her bed, panting and trembling with fear. It's in the closet, Dad, she said, pointing. What's in the closet, I asked, rubbing sleep from my eyes. I don't know, something. I heard a noise, and when I looked, it ran in the closet. The closet door was closed. Had it been open before? I couldn't remember. I reached for the knob and then hesitated. It was most likely that she had been dreaming, but there was always a chance that she had seen a rat or a mouse. Our neighborhood was somewhat rural, so vermin was a common problem. I went to the kitchen and grabbed a broom just in case. Julie had come in by now, and sat with Allie on the bed, smoothing her hair, trying to calm her down. I opened the door and pulled the chain for the light, preparing to bast the pest. But there was nothing there. I used the broomstick to scatter a pile of dirty clothes, but still there was nothing. If something had been in there, it was gone. I walked over to sit on the bed with my wife and daughter, noticing that the sketchbook had fallen from the nightstand. I closed it as I picked it up, not wanting to sneak another glance at the disgusting ruckus. But after a few minutes of convincing her that she'd only been dreaming, we finally said goodnight to Allie and went back to bed. The next day was Saturday, so there was no work or school. Julie and I sat on the sofa playing with our new phones when Allie came in, puffy-eyed, with our new sketchbook tucked under her arm. Dad, why did you tear up my picture? She asked with a strange look on her tired face. What picture, I asked. That was me, Julie offered. You spent your whole night drawing that nasty little thing and it gave you nightmares. You should draw something pretty, Allie, especially at night. Allie rolled her eyes and whined, Mom, don't do that. Ruckus is a part of my story and I need him. Fine, Julie countered. Just watch what kind of scary monsters you work on right before bed. You kept us up out all night. Yes, Mom, Allie sulked as she made her way to the table and got out her supplies. Julie and I continued to play on our phones for a while before she stood up and asked if anybody wanted breakfast. My stomach grumbled at the notion and I raised my hand. Allie didn't respond, just kept scritch-scritch-scritching on her seat. And Julie shrugged and went into the kitchen. Honey, she called. I had gotten up to see what it was Allie was working on, hoping it wasn't a replacement ruckus, but knowing that it was, yes, where's the chef's knife? Hmm, I asked. Not really hearing her as I went to stand over Allie's shoulder for a second time in less than a day, my blood went cold. There was another picture of Ruckus. Eater of children. Only this version was impossibly well detailed. And while Allie was skilled, she was still only ten after all, this one was almost photorealistic. This was impossible. Even someone with the advanced skills necessary to draw, this would have taken many hours over the span of days. Not how long it would take to drink two cups of coffee. Worse, as it dawned on me as I looked closer, ruckus was in color, although Allie had been using only black pencils, and there was something else. The first ruckus had been naked. Of that, I was sure. His gnarled skin seemed to shine the way it was shaded. This ruckus wore a pink Gorman Elementary Wildcat shirt that had been torn and stretched to look like a tunic. Worse, in his hand, he held a butcher knife. Allie, why did you draw that hat? My words were cut by a scream and crash from the kitchen. I scrambled through the living room and turned on the corner to see the impossible. Julie, my wife, my best friend, sat on the floor. Her hand pressed to a gash in her throat, and she tried to stem the flow of blood, but it poured between her fingers as her wide eyes twitched in their sockets. Eyes that landed on me in a final shock plea for help. I stood transfixed, paralyzed in my pajama shorts and world's greatest dad t-shirt, and I could not process what I have just seen. And then a searing pain ripped through the back of my knee and I fell screaming into the pool of my wife's blood. I rolled over to see Ruckus, the original white and black monster from the night before, standing over me, holding our kitchen knife. He was bigger than the picture, but all the details, especially the razor teeth and claws, were the same. He made a sort of hissing sound as he rounded on me, lifting the knife to take another blow. I raised my arm weakly to block as he put the knife down. Pain exploded in my forearm as the blade slid between the bones. Blood splayed in my face, and I had the odd sensation of being dragged as the impossible beast tugged at the knife, trying to pull it free. Don't you hurt my daddy, Allie screamed. Having finally broken out of her trance, Ruckus stopped tugging at the knife and turned around. Allie held the crumbled sheet of paper that Julie had torn from the book and thrown away. Ruckus froze and put his hands up, willing to do whatever she was willing to stop whatever she was about to do. Allie looked at the beast with hatred in her eyes, and then tore the page in half. Ruckus screamed as his left side came apart from his right. The two halves rived on the floor as Allie laid the pieces of paper together and torn them again and again and again, which each rend the creature screamed louder and separated into more parts. But he did not stop, and he did not go away. Allie began to panic, the sights and sounds finally catching up with her. Allie, I gasped, the fire! Allie looked to the side and noticed the blue flames on the stove. Julie had just lit a few moments before. She had shoved the pieces into the fire and Ruckus' screaming intensified as his parts slowly turned to ash. I slipped through the pool of blood, trying to stand up to do anything, but I could not. The last thing I remember before everything went black is seeing Allie pick up the phone to dial 911 and my horror as the new ruckus walked into the kitchen behind her. I woke up in a hospital bed two days later. The doctors informed me that I barely survived. The wound in my leg was so severe they had to amputate at the knee. They saved my arm, but there was no nerve- damage and it would be a long road to recovery for even partial use of my hand. The police were next. They informed me that Julie was dead and that Allie was missing and I was not in fact a suspect and they were looking for our attackers as we speak. The reason they knew I was not a suspect was that had there been other similar cases since I have been in the hospital. They had asked if I could offer any information on why somebody would want to attack us or why somebody would want to take Allie. I thought about telling them to look for someone dropping strange packages at random doors, but I knew it would be no use. Now they have Allie, whoever or whatever they are. They don't need to continue their search because they found the one they needed because she's good. Good enough to bring them to life. I don't know where my daughter is or why things happened the way that they did, but I do know they have her somewhere. And they're using her talent to summon truly evil things. But since I have been in the hospital, there have been more and more people who report strange and fantastic creatures with incredible powers and a penchant for extreme violence. The ones they see the most is often a squat, muscular creature with a short snout and a razor-sharp teeth. The news and web articles call it the Dog Man or the Pig Man, but his name is Ruckus. And he lives in this forest and preys on the children who get lost there, but he also preys on the children who aren't lost, and he preys on their parents, too. Ooh, oh damn. <laughs> ah, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's wild. Mm, that is wild right there. Yeah, boy. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I remember a story like that being told in Tales from the Hood. Like remember like when there was this little kid, he was being abused by his stepdad. His stepdad was a monster. And then somehow he managed to acquire magical paper that allows him to draw out all of the things that he go through. Especially when he drew the monster. And the thing is he could get revenge on people using that magic paper. So that's what this kind of reminds me of. Even though what happened in Tales of the Hood was a lighter story. Very much so compared to this. I mean, just just you think about it. Like, you know, they say if you imagine it enough, you can make things real. So this right here is a good sign of all your artists writers and then some you know we make stuff real you know what i mean so don't cut yourself short remember what your journey is but when you make stuff real chances are it might take a crack at you and see how that stuff goes and then sometimes you got to destroy your monster just to get a little bit of peace not all the time though but you know what i mean That's just wild, though. (laughs) Man, I don't know. But, you know, we're already long enough in the story, so I guess we're going to have to wrap this one up. Hey, to be fair, that first story kind of took a lot of room up in this episode this time, but it was always a blast doing the J-Man show for you guys. So tomorrow you got the Hangouts happening, so tune in to J360 TV for that. That'll be youtube.com slash J360 Productions, and it'll happen at uh, 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern, as usual. So, yeah, you can watch it on either. Actually, I think you can watch it on um, Twitch, too, if I'm not mistaken. So, yes, that would also be twitch.tv slash j360tv. Whichever one, pick your poison. We'll go ahead and we'll comment and talk to all of you at that point. But until then, though, this is Jay signing off. You guys take it easy until then. All right? Sleep well.